This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome to another edition of the In Focus podcast. I'm your host D Sampat. On February 24th, the Supreme Court refused to entertain a PIL seeking period leave for students and working women. The three-judge bench headed by Chief Justice of India D.Y. Chandrachud observed that the issue had within courts different dimensions and asked the petitioner to approach the Union Ministry of Women and Child Development to frame a policy. The court also took note of a caveat filed by a law student which said that compelling employers to grant menstrual pain leave could act as a disincentive for employers when it comes to hiring women. So is the question of period leave purely a matter of gender rights in terms of acknowledging women's biological difference and accommodating it through affirmative action or is it a bad idea because it could increase gender discrimination against women at the point of recruitment what kind of a policy intervention if any would be appropriate in this context we explore these questions in this episode of in focus and we have with us Arthi Raghavan an advocate practicing at the Bombay High Court. Arthi thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Arthi we know that already some states such as Kerala and Bihar have already taken measures to grant period leave but most states in India haven't done so. Can you talk a little bit about the legal history of period leave as an entitlement in the specific Indian context? Sure. So, period leave actually doesn't have a very extensive legal history in India. Um, there's in fact been no legislation at all on period leave, and the limited intervention that has been there is through executive action. The earliest instance of this is when the Bihar government, uh, through an order in 1992, permitted women employees of the Bihar government to avail of two consecutive days of casual leave for what they call biological reasons. um then more recently chief minister pinarayi vijayan in uh, kerala introduced a measure by which universities under the state department of education uh, relax the attendance requirement for female students on account of menstrual leave so here are two points worth noting um it is limited to university level students in kerala which is several years after girls typically hit puberty i mean it it seems to be a measure that doesn't acknowledge that there is a disadvantage women uh, girls face if they don't attend universities and perhaps the alternative would have been to create conditions in schools and colleges that made it conducive for menstruating women to attend college including clean toilets or the possibility of remote attendance or recording lectures right i mean in this context i mean it never struck me when i was reading it when I mean, generally one one tends to think of it as a progressive measure but now that you pointed out isn't it very obvious that it's actually not a good idea for girl students should be sort of skipping classes because it will work to the disadvantage you know absolutely. because of uh, period related absolutely yeah. and the focus should be to keep them in schools and colleges provide them with a friendly environment a conducive environment but that actually involves substantive outlays um, which clearly the you know even a purportedly socialist government is unwilling to do Uh, so i mean coming back to your question on uh, measures for period leave there was also two unsuccessful attempts at legislation um a menstrual benefits bill introduced in lok sabha in 2018 that didn't gain any traction later introduced in arunachal pradesh and was withdrawn as the topic was considered taboo topic was considered taboo by whom uh, by members of the legislature <laughs> so <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, oh wow okay and um, when you look at the bill it's interesting because it appears to extend not just to employees of establishments but also to self employed women in the unorganized sector um but it's unclear how i mean against whom these rights are enforceable um in when it comes to employment in the i mean uh, workforce in the unorganized sector and it prescribes both period leave and rest for a stipulated time of up to 4 days a month and the penalty was actually imprisonment and a fine which appears excessive and unnecessary imprisonment and fine for whom for the employer yes okay this is arunachal yes okay um and then the last of these of the attempted measures was shashi tharoor who introduced a bill before the lok sabha the last parliament i tried to bring a bill that would amend the rt act to actually oblige schools and government institutions to provide free menstrual projects in the toilets of girls uh, available for women so that this is available to them now you sir are you prepared to bring such a legal change i mean dr tharoor's attempt is perhaps the most promising and meaningful it affects and you know if it is implemented it would benefit the largest number of women um and it's unfortunate really that it didn't go anywhere right now coming to the actual uh, development uh, in the supreme court so the supreme court refused to entertain this petition uh, seeking period leave saying it's a policy matter now i know this is not strictly related to this particular uh, theme we are discussing in this podcast but i'm just curious how does this argument of something being or not being a policy matter uh, would decide whether or not a court can examine an issue because we keep coming up with this policy matter argument in the supreme court quite a few times i mean isn't everything on which a government can make a law and which affects citizens a policy matter and by that logic i mean isn't everything a policy matter you know i, I don't understand how this distinction is made no you are absolutely right that policy matter is a rather vague term as there is a policy that underpins each and every law or executive action so and the supreme court exercising its power of judicial review under the constitution is entitled to examine a law or executive action for an infringement of a fundamental right and while undertaking such an examination it would have to review and grapple with the policy examine what is the objective sought to be achieved whether the policy you know the action or the law is reasonable and proportionate to the stated objective etc so it it's not that it can shut its eyes entirely to policy matters however there is another aspect to be considered there are situations where there is a complete policy vacuum there is no law or executive action in respect of a certain subject um and this could also be in respect of matters of you know considerable public concern for instance sexual harassment at the workplace protection of sex workers from exploitation ragging on college campuses noise pollution these are all undeniably matters of public interest and concern they are all incidentally also issues where the supreme court has gone on to create guidelines or legal frameworks um but i think the question we need to ask is is this the supreme court's job can it create law can it define a policy is that not what we have the legislature and executive for and for a court that is admittedly so overburdened and unable to you know really deal with its own case load it is worth asking whether it should be you know getting drawn into lengthy policy discussions 
the other aspect um, of this is that it has been quite erratic in the policy matters it has chosen to wade into and frame guidelines or laws in respect of. Um, it's like, entertained issues of freebies, the appointment and functioning of the CBI very recently. Yeah, it spent a lot of, I mean, quite a bit of time on this whole freebies by political parties issues, right? I mean, that's clearly, Absolutely. Uh, if, if anything is a policy matter, that's a policy absolutely. matter, right? The appointment of the election commissioner, which the I mean, the constitution is absolutely clear on. And the only alternate to the constitutional procedure was a law by parliament, which doesn't exist. But the Supreme Court waded into it and today came out with its own directions on how election commissioners ought to be appointed. Um, so in the context of menstrual leave, framing a policy for menstrual leave would require examining whether this is the best way to address um, you know, the issues women face as a result of menstruation. Uh, what are the potential drawbacks? How it is best to be implemented? Whether the interests are better of women are better served through intervention in the health and sanitation space. Um, and this is an inquiry that courts are simply not equipped for or designed for. And they are not representative bodies. They are not directly accountable to the public and have no business entering into this, you know, enter, entering into this arena. Um, and I mean, their limited forays into this in terms of women's rights have not been hugely successful if you really were to examine the outcome of it. Right. I mean, anyway, the, the Supreme Court has, of course, uh, they said we're not going to do anything. You go and uh, seek whatever remedy you want from the ministry. Now, coming to this whole uh, debate itself, you know, I mean, regardless of what uh, the Supreme Court has uh, chosen not to do or do. I mean, women's labor force participation in India, we know the figures, it's already very low. Uh, so would making period leave mandatory put another barrier to women's employment by, uh, as some feminists have argued, by discouraging employers from hiring women? I mean, the point also made by the intervener in the Supreme Court hearing. Do you agree with that uh, thinking? Yeah, I think that's definitely something. I mean, it's a compelling point. It's something to consider. It is an inevitable consequence of such a law because employers would be deterred from hiring more women. Um, there is an undeniable cost implication and any establishment that is focused on the bottom line would be disincentivized from hiring women. Um, and also one would need to consider how many women in the workforce would be in a position to... Uh, to avail of such leave, even if it were to be implemented in law. It depends on the cultural context of the workplace and the type of work they do. Um, these types of, you know, there are types of work that lend themselves to progressive policies and flexible work from home um, you know, sort of arrangements. Um, there are also levels of employment where employees are afforded a degree of dignity and accommodation by employers. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are forms of employment and labor, which across countries, across jurisdictions, they are denied the dignity and protection of labor laws and have no meaningful access to legal proceedings. Um, so I don't think something like period law would really add to or benefit women's labor force participation in India, um, given the considerable hurdles that women already face. There is, I mean, as, as it is, we still have reticence around promotion and employment of women who wish to avail of maternity benefits. And uh, that is bound to be the case uh, with menstrual leave as well. So I think female labor force would definitely be better served if employers were just to ensure basics such as clean toilets, um, affordable menstrual hygiene products, accessible medical care relating to menstrual health. 
Right. I mean, I mean, this this is a, this is a point well uh, well explained by you. I mean, you explained it really well. But then people also point out when 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 somebody argues that this could end up disincentivizing uh, employers from hiring women because of this whole mandatory period leave thing. You also have examples of several companies in India such as Zomato, Swiggy, Maxter, Gozoop, Baijus, which are corporate entities that already offer period leave and they do have women employees uh, as well. So how do we understand this phenomenon uh, of of this disincentivization business? You know, this period leave going to be like disincentivizing employees from hiring women when you already, uh, you know, have these kinds of companies who are doing it, you know. Is it more a matter of changing workplace norms and making employees understand that this is important to do rather than bowing down to employers' prejudices and apprehensions? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how much comfort we should take from a few tech unicorns introducing seemingly progressive employment policies. Um, you know, the work profile in tech companies often permit employees the luxury of not attending work physically. Um, so such, you know, period leave policies are easier to avail of. I'd be very curious to know how many days in a month employees, including women employees on menstrual leave, are actually permitted to switch off work completely or not be made to sort of work remotely. Um, and also while celebrating progressive measures by these companies, we should keep in mind that some of these companies are founded on hugely exploitative labor practices. Um, they engage labor um, as contract labor. Delivery agents of companies such as Swiggy and Zomato are on extremely exploitative terms that don't afford them health care or leave benefits that employees are entitled to. So if there are some companies who are introducing progressive sounding policies, it is worth examining their approach to labor in a more holistic manner before taking a view on whether it's really a sign of a true change in workplace norms that you know, we should take cues from. And uh, similarly, if there's a demand for menstrual leave policies, it must start by examining the conditions of work for some of the largest labor groups uh, amongst women, domestic workers, farm workers, factory labor. Um, for instance, with domestic workers, how many employers, some of whom may be lobbying for period leave, would be willing to give their own uh, domestic workers two days of menstrual leave? Um, some are not even willing to give them a single day off in a week. So how many domestic workers are afforded clean toilets? So the topic of menstrual leave cannot be you know, confined to or become a purely elite, urban-dominated um, conversation topic. Right. You know, earlier when, when we were talking about uh, this whole uh, phenomenon of a mandatory period leave acting as a disincentive, you also spoke about how even without a mandatory period leave, just maternity leave and related benefits, it becomes an issue for uh, women who are on the point of getting uh, hired or recruited because, I mean, if, 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 if an if, uh, if an employee or an employee to be is, is just gotten married, then you know they try to sort of figure out if this person is planning to have a child and so on and so forth. So period leave, however, is in a very uh, a different uh, kind of uh, what should I say? It would be different category compared to a maternity leave. Uh, some would argue, and they would question whether it's a reasonable comparison to make, given that maternity leave involves taking care of another human being, whereas a period leave is different in that sense. 
and also in terms of regendering the workplace through something like a mandatory uh, period leave some people would say that maternity leave which is also regendering the workplace is seen as a win for women's rights whereas the same yardstick is not applied to period leave where why should it not be considered a win as well you know but others have said that it's it would be a rollback of hard won gender equity gains at the workplace if you end up getting something like a period leave so where do you stand in this entire uh, debate well, how do you look at it um well i mean i think that at a principal level both menstrual leave and maternity leave are similar as they both attempt to address a disadvantage that women face at the workspace on account of certain biological factors just like with menstrual leave not all women need maternity leave some choose not to have children some choose to adopt some have more support for childcare than others but the law prescribes and mandates a common standard and i think the same applies with menstrual leave there are varying degrees of discomfort experienced it's not debilitating for everyone but you adopt a common standard in recognition of a similar experience and a need to you know address that experience and make it at least you know sort of negate the disadvantage that women face as a result of it so i think the argument that you know people make about uh, the fact that maternity leave is distinct from menstrual leave is not entirely fair or accurate and a maternity leave is not only in recognition of needing to take care of the child but also um in recognition of the fact that the women herself may not be in a physical position or a mental position to come back to work immediately as we discussed earlier maternity benefits are not an unqualified win for feminism it's still a work in progress um and also other related maternity benefits such as nursing breaks and crash facilities that are approximate to a place of work are very often not provided um or even if they are not even if they are provided are grossly inadequate and coming to this notion of regendering the workplace i think it's again misplaced because gender neutrality does not mean the negation the negation or the effacement of gender it means recognizing gender differences and putting in place measures to address these differences or disadvantages meaningfully now whether mandatory menstrual leave is the best way to ad- address the issue of menstrual pain and discomfort that women face is a valid question but that it disadvantages women is an undeniable fact and it must be addressed through some form of state intervention the manner of that intervention of course is open to debate right so you are saying categorically that uh, having mandatory period leave would uh, disadvantage women and for reasons uh, you have explained earlier but nonetheless would you would you agree or would you say that even with these disadvantages in terms of employer biases and so on would institutional backing and legal mandate for period leave at least have some kind of symbolic significance for gender equity in a traditional society like india where women have traditionally borne the brunt of stigma attached to menstruation well yes to an extent because you're right the law is a powerful signaling tool it would help in normalizing discourse on menstruation and um engaging in menstrual health related policies would be a positive step towards countering stigmas but then again merely legislating and putting in place formal policies such as period leave without substantive ground level action would not serve any purpose as i mean bihar is a classic example of that where there are you know accounts by bureaucrats that 
speak about the fact that despite having this in place since 1992, um, unfortunately, Bihar's women do not appear to have been served by the menstrual leave policy. There are written accounts um, of by senior government employees who speak about the reluctance of women to avail of uh, period leave because they don't want to actually specify periods on their leave applications because there is still a taboo around the topic. And I mean, there's also the recent infamous incident in Bihar where a young girl student had asked a senior woman IAS officer whether sanitary pads can be made more affordable. And the senior officer mocked the student and said, oh, is your next demand going to be for free jeans and then perhaps free condoms? So if the state is serious about removing stigma around menstruation, it's tr- it should start with awareness and education in primary schools where, you know, reproductive health shouldn't be taught in vague terms and often well after the age of pu- puberty and by segregating boys and girls. Um, conditions in primary school should be conducive for students who are menstruating. And yeah, I, I think just having progressive laws or policies in place is not going to, uh, it, it won't take us very far, unfortunately. Right. One final question before we uh, wrap up. I mean, you spoke briefly earlier about the unorganized sector and also about uh, uh, domestic workers. So I just want you to sort of weigh in on whether, suppose, suppose the state were to pass a law uh, mandating period leave, you know, would, would, is there any kind of, do you see any scenario with any kind of additional rules and so on where domestic workers specifically, because we see them all the time, especially in urban uh, areas, are they at all likely to enjoy paid period leave? I mean, regardless of you know whether it is incorporated to incorporated in multiple labor laws or whatever, is there any any way in which through state intervention uh, this can be made real? Well, I think the strongest way in which the the benefits of labor laws can go to the unorganized sector is by empowering unions. Um, It is collective action that really helps, um, you know, the the large part of the labor force and by, you know, enabling unions to represent their interests and lobby on their behalf or even help them in redressing grievances, they perhaps have the best shot at availing of, you know, protections under labor laws. Um, But even the limited measures that do exist that they could perhaps avail of, you see, the state chipping away at it. For instance, Anganwadis, which are the primary centers for neonatal and maternal health care, have been progressively, you know, defunded, underfunded. The labor at these Anganwadis are casualized. They're often not paid. Um, so it, ha- it has to be by, you know, sort of focusing both funding and also empowering collective organization of these workers that could translate to the maximum benefit for the organized sector. Right. I think this Anganwadi example is, I think, a very good uh, illustration of what we're talking about. Uh, I mean, as you, I think the the big takeaway from this uh, conversation, at least for me, is that mere legislation without a serious state intervention in terms of resources, it's just a red herring. It's not going to change much. And if if you're talking about menstrual health, and the Anganwadi example wherein, you know, they are so crucial for neonatal care and it's getting defunded and the labor is getting casualized. So how serious really are you about uh, women's biological and health issues? I mean, if you are this, this is the level of seriousness, then how is going to, how is just making a law going to change things for women? Thank you so much, Arti, for talking to us.
and for sharing your uh, thoughts on this issue we'll hopefully meet again on in focus thank you very much thanks in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues in the meantime you can find our podcast on spotify apple podcasts stitcher and other platforms just search for in focus by the hindu we'll see you soon